Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with your charismatic host and prominent safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Be entertained and informed as the Safety Doc discusses both best and bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. The truth will keep you safe. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. This is Dr. David Perodin, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Hi, everyone. This is David Proden, and welcome to Safety Doc Podcast number... 60. Today we talk about the four self-awareness archetypes and introspection's fatal flaw. For years, I have taught people how to work on self-reflection and introspection, key elements for very rushed leaders. But you know what? That is not all the way up the mountain. It's that point when you get above the clouds and you have that incredible view, and it's like, whoa, whoa, it's like otherworldly. Um, but you know what? You need to get all the way to the top of that mountain, all the way to the summit, right there at the top. And there's something there we're going to talk about today, which I haven't talked about before. So I'm going to get into introspection, talk about how to navigate that. And a lot of times we don't even do that very effectively. And then the step beyond that, it's going to make you um, much more thoughtful in your everyday activities, finding peace in what you do, finding strength in what you do, being a better leader, whether that be um, in your family, whether it be with uh, groups at work, whatever, or just the finding peace and, and harmony within your own thoughts and contemplating everything that comes at us during the day. Oh my goodness, like how many posts on Twitter and, and social media and the regular media, Oh, it's outrageous. So um, let's give some thanks here. It's Groundhog's Day, which uh, means we're thankful for groundhogs. Um, but we are also thankful for the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. The 405 Media with John Grant airing this show, 2 p.m. PST daily. The 405 Media out of Los Angeles. It is the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. Go in. And listen to Aaron Clary and the Clary Podcast, Larry Roberts and Readily Random, and just so many more outstanding podcasters, so many outstanding shows on the 405 Media out of Los Angeles, the405media.com. I want to give a shout out to a new podcaster, um, Kat, with the Paranormal Hearts Podcast. You can find it on Podbean, podbean.com, type in Paranormal Hearts. Uh, it's a show that I'm also following, so you can you can locate it that way. Um, Kat is is interviewing people right now, setting up her interview schedule, um, which is which is filling up quickly about stories, um, paranormal and, and supernatural, and then drilling down deep into those stories. So it's it's going to be a really um, a, a really thought provoking, <laughs> fascinating show. Um, it is right now. I mean, I think there's there's just a handful of episodes out, but um, I, I've, I'm excited because these are the types of things, and, and I, I've, I've said this um, before, and it was something I experienced with my interview 
when I had Jim Mallard on my show and also when I was on his show, people who investigate the paranormal are very, very good at seeking empirical data and knowing how to set up and research a scene and, and do background information. And that translates extremely well um, into areas such as podcasting and not only talking about you know paranormal um, conspiracy and things like that, but also talking about very kind of unusual series of events. So really some fascinating stuff. Um, but I do uh, want you to check out um, that new show, Paranormal Hearts, um, with Kat as your host on Podbean. A thank you to Sprigio, S-P-R-I-G-E-O. You can look in the background here if you're watching on YouTube, S-P-R-I-G-E-O, Sprigio.com out of Santa Barbara, California, a sponsor of the Safety Dog Podcast. Sprigio.com, the nation's leader in online bullying, harassment, discrimination, and threat reporting for schools. Sprigio has taken it to the next level. I work with Sprigio in a consultant capacity specific to the user interface. A massive, massive um, uh, attention focusing on making sure that students are able to interface with with the system and just systems in general. Uh, Sprigio is the leader in that, making sure that we're not producing things at a level um, that, that that basically is is not understood by by kids or adults. And if you go in and sample, it's interesting. You go in and sample handbooks, uh, you'll find a lot of uh, content regarding bullying and harassment is written at a twelfth grade level or beyond. So working diligently with Joe and the great folks at Sprigio to create the most user-friendly universal design for learning interface that exists for reporting. So Sprigio.com, if your school district is not using Sprigio.com, ask why not, you know, check it out, Sprigio.com. Thank you to Hector Solis and the Awareness Podcast. Uh, Awareness Podcast, you can also find on Podbean, and the uh, narratives that go along, if you go and read about the investigative process that um, Hector has, has undergone with his um, interviews, um, most recently in the areas of grooming and sex trafficking, also bullying, school safety. But phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. It, it, this, again, this it's removing the rhetoric. It's stripping the rhetoric away and getting to the heart of the matter where he is interviewing um, people and getting the firsthand accounts of their experiences. So you need to check out the Awareness Podcast. Please, Awareness Podcast with Hector Solis. And guess what? Hector is going to be my guest on podcast number 61 here with the Safety Doc. Yeah, you know, good friend Hector. He's coming back. We are doing a special on grooming practices, um, how to help parents and schools identify grooming practices, questions to ask students to cultivate a discussion which might surface. You know what? I have concerns that that student might be a victim or a recipient of grooming. Uh, Very fascinating fact that Hector shared with me. One out of 80 to 100 um, children who are groomed uh, report that. So, you know, it's it's one out of 80 to 100. So we're talking like, you know, 1%, uh, you know, maybe one and a half percent. So it just doesn't get reported and for a number of reasons. And we're not looking for it right now in our reporting systems. It's not talked about frequently in schools. It's not talked about by parents. So, you know, it's an uncomfortable topic. So we're going to get into that 
and say, here's some language that you can use, which is, um, you know, not going to be offensive. And it, it's language to get into this, this very touchy topic. And then also, um, what, what happens if you do start to learn about some of these things? How can you, can you intervene? And I'll, I'll, I'll leave that with saying, uh, one of the stories Hector shared with me is that once this happens, um, where a child has, has become successfully groomed uh, by somebody, it's very, very hard to reunite that child with their family. In some cases, impossible. So we are talking about something very, very significant. Again, that will be Podcast 61, which we'll record in this upcoming week and will be released um, in approximately one week. That needs to be a listen. Folks, that needs to be a listen to anybody out there who has kids or anybody who works with kids or interfaces with kids um, you know, through, through the types of, you know, work that they do or whatever, you know, church groups, um, because there are going to be subtle things, which Hector will, will talk about. Um, and also that I'll talk about from my research and we need to get this more to the forefront. Um, because right now this is absolutely crazy. I, I believe, um, you know, too, I, I saw something, um, a, a documentary where the a police department put out like five or six profiles you know, they, uh, just a, just a picture of a of a you know young person, um, and within you know an hour or two hours, they already had numerous hits or contacts. You know, from people asking questions, which you know started to show like a grooming type pattern. The questions that were being asked. So, um, you know, if you have kids and, and they have a a social media page. It can be a picture where they are they are just, you know, in their room, they're in front of the house, it's just some regular, you know, picture. And that picture is is going to be scanned by millions of eyes. And some of those people are going to be groomers and they're gonna see that picture. They're gonna study the picture, they're gonna study the background, and and things just can spiral from there if they can start that that communication exchange. And the groomer is gonna tell the child uh, what ever the child wants to hear to validate the child where as parents we tell the child what the child needs to hear so i don't want to get too much more into that except saying that is a podcast that you must prioritize and if it doesn't directly pertain to you please email um, that to you know your your friends and and say you know what i want you to watch this because you know there are some points in here and maybe some discussion questions you can have with, with your kids because I just want you to take that extra step in keeping your, your kids and your family safe. Um, Jim Mallard, you know, <laughs> I didn't know the Mallard podcast uh, up until um, a few weeks ago, um, and it is phenomenal. You know, so you, so you uncover these, these outstanding podcasts and these incredible citizen journalists the more that you move away from the mainstream media, which I largely have done, and you cultivate the podcast. Um, I actually had to buy another 16 gig SD card. So, <laughs> you know, I listened to so many podcasts and and, and a lot of Jim's shows went, went on to that, that card. Um, but Jim is a paranormal investigator, so you can go to Mallard, M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com, Mallard.com, and find out um, about you know his his work but he has so many podcasts and he has interviewed um i was on his show but roger stone you know was on his his show and he interviewed um the the um forensic uh 
the, the detective who was working in forensic linguistics with uh, the FBI, James Fitzgerald. And in that interview, um, James Fitzgerald was instrumental in helping to crack the Unabomber, the Ted Kaczynski case. And something out of that, that I'm going to share. So, um, you know, uh, Jim Fitzgerald was going through, Detective Fitzgerald was going through the numerous documents that were provided by Ted Kaczynski's brother. And there was, um, there was one sentence in it, and the sentence was, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Or I think it was might have been transposed as like, you can't eat your cake and have it too. But it was written in a way that that didn't typically follow the, the way that that goes. Um, and it was something that was included in one of the manifestos from the Unabomber. And it was that one sentence which eventually led to um, obtaining a search warrant. And, and basically it was, um, you know, weeks later that they were able to locate the, the you know, Ted Kaczynski and, and crack this case and, and basically solve this case and, you know, put Ted in, in jail and, and stop every, uh, all the horrors that were associated with, with you know, the Unabomber. So um, fascinating, fascinating stuff, how we think about linguistics and, and how that fits into the investigative process. So it shows you the range that Jim has. You know, he identifies himself as a paranormal investigator, but then, you know, he has so many interviews of people who look into very specific things like, you know, Jim Fitzgerald and, you know, linguistic forensics, what that meant and, and how that solved this case. And, oh my goodness, I, I, and it's the fastest hour in paranormal. It really is. He keeps it to an hour. And, uh, and he, all, he also has a, a fun set about two minutes worth of questions at the end. Like, you know, if there's three people dead or alive that you could have for supper, um, you know, who, who would it be? <laughs> and, and things like that. But a phenomenal um, citizen journalist. And check it out because there are so many shows that you can go in and instantly, you know, create a playlist. So if you're, you know, driving somewhere, if you're out running, you know, whatever you want to do, if you just want to kick back and, and be educated on a range of topics. And plus the paranormal gets fascinating. He interviewed uh, somebody um, who identifies as Dark Waters. And this person um, was talking about even how um, investigating, you know, interviewing people about uh, paranormal stories of, of the caution, this Dark, dark Waters was doing this of not wanting to get too much um, information if it might be like demonic or something like that because these the spirits can cross through the lines and and, and you know basically end up tagging themselves to to that you know to dark water who's doing that interview so um, some of you might be like that's that's pretty out there um, you know I, I guess yes and no I mean have an open mind but he is a phenomenal storyteller he's on he's been on Jim's show. You can find him too. So again, the Mallard Podcast. So I was out running last night. Um, actually, it was uh, that's a lie. I was not out running last night. It was the night before, um, and oh, I was just it was phenomenal. The it, we the the full moon. I mean, it was a full moon, and usually at this time of year, there's a lot of snow um, on the track, which isn't too far the high school track from where I live, and that's where I ran. Um, and it was it was just an incredible night to be reflective. I ran for like nine. I was out ninety minutes. I didn't think it was out that long, but ninety minutes. And now we're having snow. Pretty pretty big snowfall right now. Um, 
So we're having some some renovations, some updates done on our home. So there's a dumpster in the driveway. And then, of course, our vehicles are parked outside. The garage is turned into like a you know workshop right now for the workers. So it's going to be kind of weird I, how I'm going to clear the snow off. So I think I can I can get out there with my snowblower and, and at least, you know, the end of the driveway where they come through with the snowplow and, you know, put the nice, you know, four-foot pile of snow up. I can I can hammer that down with the snowblower, but the rest I'm going to have to kind of do with a shovel because especially with the two cars out there, I don't want to get anything too crazy where... You know, I'm rubbing up against the car with a snowblower or something like that. But, um, but yeah, so it actually looks like tomorrow, you know, there could be a chance of some sledding here, which is incredible uh, because we haven't had enough snow to go sledding yet. We're into February. So, um, yes, yes. And as you know, I'm not a big fan of, of winter at all. So, <laughs> snow today, but, you know, six months, uh, or six months, six weeks from now, daylight savings time and, you know. Snow's going to probably be gone here. I'll be getting my bike ready. It's going to be awesome, awesome time. So let me go and do a little post-it note peel off right here. Um, so I was on uh, the Mallory Report, as I had talked about. Um, you can check that out. And Jim and I talked about the Hawaii Missile Crisis and the blunder of that whole thing. of Why did it happen? And I argued that really it shouldn't have happened. There are steps in place to prevent something from happening like that in the emergency broadcast system activated at a local um, level. If it does have to do with anything that's military related, um, the only thing that really would happen is just that standard buzz and like, you know, here's an activation of the emergency broadcast system. The message itself comes out of STRATCOM or NORAD after being um, confirmed by the president and the um, Secretary of Defense. But anyway, they ended up firing the, the guy that pressed the button and he, he, to send out this message, you know, saying that there was an inbound missile attack on Hawaii, which there wasn't. Um, but he's saying, you know what, it was like a shift change. I didn't hear that this was a drill. And, you know, I end up getting, they initially reassigned him and he, he ends up getting fired because of this. Um, so, you know, that doesn't make sense. I mean, Apparently, I'm thinking he's doing what he needs to do in these situations and, uh, you know, when they run the drills. Um, so very, very strange on that. I still think this was a hack. <laughs> I think it was a hack. And, and I have some other evidence to support that at some of the state levels of some things that have been going on regarding fortifying some computer systems. Um, but I, I think this was a hack. I think this is all a cover story and the lack of media coverage we've had, you know, this guy, um, you would think would be on shows all over the place. Like they would be bringing him like, tell us what happened. And you know, how did you, I mean, because he was quiet for a while, like he wasn't cooperating. Um, but no, I mean, he's, he's, he's not getting any, uh, real attention, you know, from this, um, which, which really shows it's not, it's not something that's on, you know, the the priority list for media. So I think Jim's going to try to contact him and, and see if he'll come out and talk. And who knows? Who knows? But uh, uh, Jim and I also talked about the butterfly effect and the Mandela effect. So you might want to look into those. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. 
Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. And we are back. All right. From my uh, doctoral dissertation, you know, um, what do we what do we have here? Oh, 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 oh. And actually, this is written pretty well. <laughs> A lot of times I write things. I'm like, is that what word is that? So um, so today I'm going to talk about an article that was done by Harvard Business Review. Um, the author is Tasha Urich. And, and let me read her bio quick um tasha all right tasha urich is a ph uh, has a phd in organizational um she is an organizational psychologist researcher and new york times best-selling author she is principal of the urich group a boutique executive development firm that helps companies from startups to the fortune 100 succeed by improving the effectiveness of their leaders and teams her newest book insight delves in to the connection between self-awareness and success in the workplace. So um, the credit for what I'm going to share to you goes to Tasha. And I'm going to explain it and in, in, in kind of generalize it out to um, how I think this can help you. So first of all, um, and I'll get back to my doctoral dissertation in a second here, but a shout out to the Harvard Business Review. They're articles are are incredible i mean they're well researched they stay very close to what their constructs are or what their themes are and, and they don't they don't get like the atlantic you know the atlantic i've had some issues with the atlantic early on but you know where they pull from all of these different studies and little quotes and things to kind of build um into whatever narrative they're trying to generate this is very thorough from start to finish this is extremely well written by tasha um, the research is is very sound on this, and and you can go in Harvard Business Review and find article after article after article that just meets this high standard. So, um, encourage you to do that. This is the type of stuff where it's so hard with the mainstream media to find articles where you're not being manipulated, <laughs> trying to be manipulated, or the articles are just so incomplete that you read it and it's like I'm not quite sure I'm you know, I got the full story or there was a lot of positionality. Someone wanted me to believe a certain thing here, but, um, Harvard business review, check it out because it, it, it you know, and you think Harvard, you know, it's going to be very sophisticated and very much to a niche audience. Um, no, this, this stuff is, is done extremely well. And, and this article is maybe eight to 10 pages. So check that out, Harvard business review. So in my, um, from my doctoral um, dissertation. So I had worked with um, high stakes decision-making in the military, healthcare, and then in schools. And from the schools, so talking about, you know, we have 55 million kids a day that go to school in the United States. So large number, I mean, a huge number of uh, percentage of our population. Principals, um, school principals were not reflecting on the decisions that they were making. 
And so these are a lot of these two were high stakes decisions. You know, it might have to do with a high stakes a discipline event. I'm not necessarily necessarily saying like somebody, you know, bringing a knife or a gun or something like that. Could, you know, but it could be a threat or, um, you know, a fight, something like that. Um, but anyway, what was happening is you had these high stakes um, decisions that were were happening. Let's say you know a student gets in gets in a fight with another student, might you know be on a suspension for a few days, and and then you might have to look at how are we going to you know reunite that student back into the school? Do we have to change classrooms for these students? You know the the ramifications for once the parents are notified and, and all of that. So it gets into this. Um, so principals often were moved out of what their what I, I refer to as a Taurus, and it is an actual term, T-O-R-T-O-R-U-S, Taurus, meaning every day, you know, you get up and you basically know what your day is going to be. I mean, you, you can predict it pretty closely. No days are the same. Sameness doesn't exist. We talked about that, but, but they're similar. So meaning that today, um, I can get up and, well, today, a little different because it's snowing, but I, I know, you know, I'm going to, you know, brush my teeth and I'm going to take a shower and here's a cereal I'm going to have and then I'm going to do this and this. And you can get pretty close into predicting that. And and even like on your commute to work and, you know, home and what your your job is going to be like that day and things. Now, when you get all the time, so the, the torso is kind of like a bagel. So you kind of like move around within the torso, not like a straight line. But there can be things that happen to totally throw you out. You know, you get in a car accident or something like that, that, that completely takes you out of your torso and moves you into kind of like a state of chaos and then you have to move from that state of chaos back into a state of, of Taurus. So like, you know, let's say car accident, you're transported to the hospital. Um, you know, maybe you have a broken arm, otherwise you're okay, but you know, you've got to be off of work for a little while. You've got to readjust how you are, um, you know, able to put your, you know, clothes on and, and just all these things. And then, you know, work with the insurance company, get a different car, things like that. So at some point, you know, you go very chaotic to when this accident just happens to kind of working throughout chaos back into what your Taurus is. But your Taurus, though, resets. It's not the same. I mean, now you've got your arms in a cast, you know, for a number of months and and things are different for you. So you, you get into this new Taurus, this new ro- routine, and then eventually you kind of go maybe closer back to what your previous Taurus was. But you'll never completely like go back to what that Taurus was before the accident because you're going to always have, you know, some, some thoughts about the accident, you know, the, the, it's going to change. It's going to change the way that you drive. It's going to change some of your behaviors and things like that. So it's very typical just for normal for all of us. Nothing I'm describing here is, is way out there, but what was happening with principles was it was very hard to do, um, very difficult to do what I call a hard reset, meaning that you would have, you know, an angry parent, you, you would, and, and this would happen all the time, all the time. I mean, like daily, it was, um, the fact that I could even get people to sit down with me for two hours to do an interview and then follow up interview and record it and stuff where they wouldn't be called out to deal with some kind of um, situation was, was incredible. Um, and, and not always the case. So it's hard for this, the principals to do this, this hard reset, basically getting back to the Taurus. Um, so something happens that moves them outside and, and they, they, they experience decision fatigue. So you have to make a decision where there's a lot of emotions of the student. You know, the staff are um, impacted by this. Parents are upset. And basically, you know, you make these decisions and it results in decision fatigue. There was a whole section that developed when I was doing 
um, my my analyzing. So it's called qualitative when you're analyzing interviews. It's a qualitative study. And just page after page after page of transcribed interviews, and then you start to find words and patterns that make sense, you know, kind of kind of similar. And it's, it's almost like linguistics, you know, like FBI linguistics, almost, okay? So you get in and you start to say, here's some themes that are starting to emerge. And one theme that was showing up with every principle was this decision fatigue, basically saying, I make decisions like this, and then I have I, I have a hard time rebounding. Like I'm not reflecting on my decisions. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm having a hard time with introspection. I'm having a hard time breaking away and disconnecting. And what's happening is um, two things. One is I'm, I'm just wearing down. I'm not getting to be uh, as precise of a decision maker as I was. Maybe I'm making faster decisions, some patterning decisions, almost like standard operating procedure. Well, this happened, boom, I'm going to do this. And then, because I know I have to move on to the next thing. So the so you're not as efficient in the heuristics process or weighing like all of your options. You're kind of going with, well, I, I'm going to make this decision because this is similar to something that happened in the in, in the past, you know, and, and so so you start to pattern your decisions. So, um, you know, and, and you move on to the next fire. You can only spend so much time on that, so to speak. So we're going to we're going to talk about that because that would wear down principles. And, and what principles would also tell me is that that had a, an effect when they would go maybe the next day they had a professional development meeting and they're, they're meeting to talk about curriculum or something completely unrelated to the this event the previous day, which might have had, you know, significant behavioral incident, whatever. But as they get in and they're talking about curriculum and reading levels and stuff, they're, during that process, they're having a hard time making decisions because they still haven't processed and they haven't returned to their Taurus. They're still kind of in this 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 state between um, bouncing between chaos and not maybe like, you know, full chaos is going to be if you have somebody come into school with a weapon and stuff like that, it's going to really kick you out into chaos. But, but people who are kind of like living on the outside of their Taurus and, and not really quite sure, it's hard to get back into what that routine is. Um, so they're just not making good decisions or, or they're not confident in the decisions they're making. And, and the question I brought up is like, do you feel you'd make better decisions? Like if you could somehow reset yourself and you're like, yeah, absolutely. Like I just, I'm kind of walking through some of these things. Um, so I think that, I think that's prevalent. Um, so today we're going to draw the distinction between introspection and awareness. We're going to actually talk about the, these four um, overarching types, archetypes of, of self-awareness. Um most people just talk about introspection. Okay, introspection. We need to be more introspective. True, and there's there's a certain way to do that, which I'm going to talk about today. But really, we need to be aware. Aware is the next step up. That's where you want to get to. It's hard to get to aware. And I'll admit, like, I, I don't know. Maybe in some aspects I'm aware. Other aspects I am in introspection. Um, but we're going to talk about kind of these four quadrants. You can identify immediately where you are at. <laughs> As I go through these, you'll say, yeah, that's me. And there's certain circumstances, certain organizations, you know, it's like, I might be this way at work, but I'm this way at home. But typically, um, you know, you're, you're going to be pretty standard if this is, if you're an introspective person or a seeker or whatever, that's going to, that's going to kind of be, um, a profile that you're going to carry through different aspects of your life. So, and then I get, you know, not to say one is, is better necessarily than the other, although I do think there is a progression of more opportunities if you can get to awareness. Um, so anyway, we'll go, we'll go through that. So I also think the term um, in, introspection and awareness are conflated. So not because of the Mandela effect, but meaning like those two terms, 
um, get get used as synonyms when they're not. So we will get into that. So, um, yeah, I think I've got I've got a point here I want to share. But in another in another. So we're going through this article right now, Harvard Business Review, uh, What Self-Awareness Really Is and How to Cultivate It, again by Tasha Urich, E-U-R-I-C-H, January 4th, 2018. So I'm just going to read the, the start of this, and then I went through and I did, I did notes. Um, okay. Self-awareness seems to have become the latest management buzzword, and for good reason. Research suggests that when we see ourselves clearly, we are more confident, more creative. We make sounder decisions, build stronger relationships, and communicate more effectively. We're less likely to lie, cheat, and steal. We are better workers um, who get more promotions. And we are more effective leaders with more satisfied employees and more profitable companies. So that's, um, wow. <laughs> if you can deliver all of that, that's pretty amazing. But this article does does a nice job of pointing, pointing that out. Um, we, you know that there is this relationship to those things um, from the points that Tasha makes. So I'm going to get in now, and I went through, okay, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, went through, did highlights, you know, made some notes, and, and I'm going to get into it. So, but so the first thing we need to do here is to learn a little bit more about the Safety Doc Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin, author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. In 10 separate investigations with nearly 5,000 participants, okay, Tasha and her team examined what self-awareness really is. So right there, 10 separate investigations, 5,000 participants. That's impressive. That's good research because you have uh, different samples you've done, 10 samples, 5,000 participants. That's a good end base or a, a population base that you're sampling. So right there, that you put that out. That's an indicator. That's good research. That's good research. So... Um, about the research, the research, um, included a very thorough lit review of 800 existing scientific studies to understand how previous researchers defined self-awareness un and unearthed, you know, themes and trends and so forth. But I like this, I mean, 800 existing scientific studies, impressive again, but studies to understand how previous researchers defined, because so many times we just don't define terms. We don't have inter-rater reliability on terms. I talked about that with inclusion is different than mainstreaming. Acceptance is different than tolerance. So nice job. Um, surveying thousands of people across countries and industries to explore the relationship between self-awareness and several key attitudes and behaviors like job satisfaction, 
empathy, happiness, and stress. So those are actually called constructs in a survey. So they're trying to understand job satisfaction, empathy, happiness, and stress. Those are four constructs, meaning that you then create questions which help inform those constructs or answer questions, you know, to so you better understand those constructs, right? So you better understand job satisfaction, empathy, happiness, and stress. And you typically like mix those questions up. Like you don't have, here's our job satisfaction section. Here's our empathy. They get mixed throughout the whole survey, um, which reads, uh, results in more reliability. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, of serving. <laughs> so, and, and I don't know, I've, I've talked about that before. Maybe I'll focus a show just on the reasons why surveys are usually not very, they're, they're not a very good way to get information. Now in this, I would say, yes, you have constructs that are defined, but think about, it's like, um, I, I, so many times schools, We'll say, well, we're just going to write our own survey to ask teachers like what they they think about school safety, and and they and uh, you know principal or whoever puts together some questions and a Google survey doc and boom sends it out. Well, I mean you haven't you haven't identified your constructs, your questions that are going to inform your constructs. Um, so so these things can you can really design surveys which are going to. Um, not tell you a lot of information or they're, they're just going to validate, you know, like what, what you want to hear. Um, you know, so I, I'll get into, sir, I'll, I'll break those down sometime, but anyway, th- th- this was well done. We have constructs in, in this, which are identified. So, um, there are two types of self-awareness. Okay. Some, Okay, for example, some see it as the ability to monitor our inner world, whereas others label it as a temporary state of consciousness. So again, two two ways. One is it's a way to monitor our inner world, or basically, you know, to think about your um, think about your thoughts and, and your values. And this is where you kind of come back to things maybe after a while, whereas others others label it as a temporary state of self consciousness. And that's really like in the moment um, that you you are analyzing all of those things, um, which is very, again, difficult for, we talked about like the school principals to do in the moment. You know, if you can separate away, you know, principals would tell me if I'm out walking my dog at night, yeah, I can think about the decision that I made or whatever. But like in that moment when I maybe have all of these people around me and other things are going on concurrently, and no, it's hard to get into that state of self-consciousness. So... Um, so across the, the studies, we examined two broad categories of self-awareness that kept emerging. The first we dubbed internal self-awareness. It represents how clearly we see our own values, passions, and aspirations. Um, so again, internal self-awareness, how you understand your own values, your passions, your, your aspirations. Okay. Um, and the second one, the second category was external self-awareness, meaning understanding how other people view us. So internal, you know, that you understand how you feel, I guess, how you align to your own moral compass. And then the second being this external self-awareness of like, how are other people viewing what I'm doing? Not necessarily that you need positive feedback. I mean, that you need the feedback to be positive, like people to applaud your decisions and all of that. But like, are they viewing me as making fair, thoughtful decisions? Am I am I congruent to my values when I'm making decisions, or am I showing favoritism to the, 
you know, teachers who have, have worked here longer or something like that, you know, or teachers who are aspiring to become administrators, whatever. Um, you know, it is, it, it definitely, I, I want to go back to this external self-awareness because it's, it's the principles, it's people. Now let's get away from principles. It's the people. Just let's, let's take, take this way. Internal self-awareness, you know, you, you're out, you know, and, and you can think you're reading a book, you're sipping tea, you're taking a run, you're doing yoga, you whatever you're doing, you can, you can think your own self-awareness. You're, you're, you're thinking, you're, you're reflecting. Um, how do you feel? you know, identifying your values. The, but here's what's happening. This external self-awareness, understanding how other people view us. It, it's not, I think what's happening is the shaping is going on. Whether, and it's for leaders too. It's the leaders who are checking out, um, you know, like how how am I, how popular am I basically, you know? And and what's the what's the media saying about me, you know, as, as a leader and, and all of this stuff. I think it's 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 crazy, but I think it happens. Um, so it's not so much external self awareness as in whether or not people see you as being just or, or whatever. I think it's when people, you know, th- are they seen as a rock star? Or are they seen as someone who's being criticized? And I think there are people who rise above that, um, and 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 that's great. But I I know you know there's a number of professional athletes, for example, who they seek external validation by reading what was written on ESPN or their local papers or whatever, you know, about them and their performance and things like that. Um, and some athletes will totally like tune out of that because they'll be like this. It's so destructive. It can lead them one way or another. It can lead them to be very complacent. You know, like you are the infallible star and everything you do is awesome. And it wasn't you, it was the refs or the conditions or bad coaching or something. So anyway, let's get into this for the four self-awareness archetypes. And there's a diagram that goes with this. It will be in the blog post. So um, the the first one um, I'm going to talk about is is low internal self awareness. Um, those people are seekers. Okay, seekers. So that's the first group. Seekers. They seekers. They don't know. Um, the, they don't yet know who they are, what they stand for, or how their team see them. As a result, they might feel stuck or frustrated with their performance and relationships. Probably see that in people who are kind of new into positions. Um, They don't quite understand how they fit their role, how their role fits into different parts of the organization, into the greater organization, into like their career aspirations and all of that. So they're trying to figure that out, seekers. They don't know yet who they are, what they stand for. Um, So those people can benefit greatly from mentoring. and, and those people are very susceptible to being heavily externally reinforced and shaped. So if you have somebody who's a seeker and you and they're not sure what they stand for, um, if somebody in a position of positionality, um, you know, like a, a person who's been in a management position for a long time or, or whatever, or, you know, I guess Hector and I can even talk about how this might work for in the grooming process. Um, but you can, if somebody is is validating you, not necessarily as telling you what's appropriate to hear, but telling you that you know you're doing great and all of that. That is, you know, that fosters that seeker behavior. You don't want to stay in the seeker category long, okay? But you all, everybody, maybe you know, we we kind of get there at some point. Seekers. Um, and the first thing you're going to do as a seeker is say like, well, here's here's my here internally. Here's what I stand for. Here's what I believe in. Whatever, and like that will start to move you into other categories. 
So let's talk about another category here, pleasers, okay? Um, and once you move into ple pleasers, these are people who are also low internal self-awareness, um, but they, they really have high external self-awareness. So pleasers, they can be focused on appearing a certain way to others that they could be over, you know, they, they overlook a lot of things and over time they tend to make choices that aren't in service of their own success and fulfillment. I example that I've seen with pleasers, these, these are the people that don't want to upset the boss. So it's, it's like the people who are in management and they don't, they, they want to um, make sure that, yeah, they're, they're not telling the boss anything that the boss doesn't want to hear. It's like, you know, the emperor, that the emperor has no clothes. You don't say anything like that because um, you don't want to say, you know, anything that isn't going to be congruent with um, decisions that your boss is making. Even if the decisions aren't in the best interest, maybe of the boss or the company, you're not going to say anything. So pleasers um, are very much prevalent in micromanaged companies and in school boards, for example, when school boards, you know, need you to, to validate, <laughs> they get in and micromanage and say, why did you spend $8 and 11 cents, you know, for, for this? And, and you went to this conference and, and whatever, you know, versus like just the professional discretion to do that. Um, you need to, to, a lot of people morph into this pleaser role of, 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 you know, feeling they need to please the board to keep these people happy and things like that um, versus, you know, being true to themselves and doing what they need to do. So pleasers, pleasers. Um, now let's move up into the area. So if you're a seeker or a pleaser, let, let's, let's move you into introspector or being aware. So high internal self-awareness and low external self-awareness. So this is introspector. So I, I've told people, you know, try to be more introspective as, as I've worked in consulting and that, you know, take time to understand your um, decision making, how, how it, it worked with your values, the options that were available, how it applied to the rules set, and just, you know, how you feel about that. And a part that comes into that I've talked about before is member checks. Member checks are people that do the same type of job you do or a similar type of job or management. They've been in, they it can be cross field, but they, they can relate. Okay. And they, you can talk to them, you know, you can't give out confidential information, but you can talk to them and they'll, they'll be true with you. And they'll say, yeah, like this was probably good. This probably wasn't. Here's some areas you, you looked at really thoroughly. Here's some areas you kind of glossed over. These are the people who help you find the blind spots because you're not finding those on yourself. So introspectors here, they're clear on who they are. Um, but don't challenge their own views or search for blind spots by getting feedback from others. This can harm their relationships and limit their success. So an introspector could be someone who is extremely efficient at what they do and they can just keep accelerating, accelerating, but they, they're not realizing, um, for example, you know, this could be someone who gets great at their, their job and they're doing all of these awesome rock star things, but at the same time, their blood pressure is sky high and, and they're working all these long hours and they're not going to their, um, you know, things that they used to like to do, like, you know, go to movies or go out biking or do things with their family. So, so these holes are happening. These blind spots are happening of I, I'm doing allegedly like great here, but at the same time, I'm, I'm losing it because my, my body's not healthy and I'm at high risk for heart attacks, stuff like that. So these are introspectors. So, 
you know, I, I for years told people search to be better at introspection, which I think comes with the caveat of you need a member check group to be able to be honest with you. It was fascinating. It was back in the, um, oh my goodness. And I wrote about this somewhere and I don't know where it is. Um, but I'm, I'm, oh goodness. Did I write it down? All right. I, ah, uh, I don't, but let me, I've got it. I've got it. I'll get into it in a second. I'm going to, I'm, uh, I've got a great story to, to share off that. But anyway, introspectors and member checks. Um, and then we get into what I think is ideal. It's it's high external self-awareness included with high internal self-awareness. So this kind of gets into the research of Carl Weick and sense-making. They, okay, aware. They know who they are, what they want to accomplish and seek out and value others' opinions. This is where leaders begin to fully realize the true benefits of self-awareness. So awareness is, it brings in that missing piece where you're performing very well, but um, you're also listening and perceptive of what others are saying. You're being able to evaluate that and calibrate yourself versus like get in that defensive mode. It's like, here's, well, you said this, but I did this because of whatever. It's like, no, I mean, and, and some of the things you hear, yeah, it's going to be legit. Some people might just be jealous and not give you, you know, the information um, that's pure. But but anyway, it, it, it's that awareness. It's understanding um, that how you, your, your internal awareness, how you're feeling, it's that external awareness, being able to assess that and say, you know what, like, um, yeah, I, I really, you know, my doctor is sitting there, there and telling me about whatever in my health and, and it's not dismissing it and saying, yeah, whatever, like other people, that's other people. That's not me. Um, it's saying, no, I know I, I, you're right. You're right. You're right. I need to, uh, make sure I'm getting out at lunch hour and I'm, you know, walking around a couple blocks and I'm setting some boundaries on days that I'm getting out at times. I'm making sure like I'm doing some things with my, you know, my family and, and Hey, you know, I really, I really used to, like, you know, doing more stuff out in the yard. I need to get back into that. Um, I want to go spend some time at the, you know, at the library or there was something I was doing with this community group, which I haven't done much anymore because of, of meetings and stuff. So I want to reconnect with that. So, um, so yeah, searching for awareness. And, and again, I'll put the graphic out there. It does a really nice job. And again, a link to the article, all of that will be there. So um, kind of gets into the theme of the story. Don't stop at introspection introspection will only get you so far. Awareness will, will take you that, that extra step. So, um, experience and power hinder self-awareness. Um, so yeah, yeah, I, I definitely think, um, I think that's true. Experience and power hinder self-awareness. If, if, if you have the power, people aren't going to to challenge you necessarily. <laughs> you know, the people that you work with, they're, they're just not going to give. You're going to have a false sense of competence that everything is working because you've made it work. Well, you're part of a whole organization. There's people underneath you who are working. Um, some of it could just be the luck of, of the the field that you're in at that moment, that things are going well. Um, so, so, yeah, you get in that comfort zone, and I don't think you sharpen the saw, as Covey would say. You don't sharpen the saw. So... Um, anyway, here's a quote from the study. Even though most people believe they are self-aware, only 10 to 15% of the people we studied actually fit the criteria. Most were kind of in that introspection. So if you can get to that self-aware or that awareness level of knowing internally, 
um, your your internal awareness and your external awareness, um, you're you're really in a great place, and that's where you want to be. So similarly, the more power our leader holds, the more likely they were to overestimate overestimate their skills and abilities. You know, so um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where where you you just think you get better than than the systems, and all of that kind of depends on on you. And you know, it's um, so researchers have proposed two primary explanations for this phenomenon. First, by virtue of their um, by their level, senior leaders simply have fewer people above them who can provide candid feedback. So I talked about those member checks. Yeah, they have fewer member checks, fewer people who have walked in those shoes can really give them give them feedback, candid feedback. The second part is the more power a leader wields, the less comfortable people will be to give them constructive feedback. So yeah, I mean, because you don't want to upset the boss, right? <laughs> and And even though the boss might say like, I want you to give honest feedback, people are going to measure that. So that's where um, you really need those member checks to, to come in. So um, as one power, as a person's power grows, um, their willingness to listen also shrinks. So, you know, I, and I, I don't know. I, I, I question that. I question that statement. Here's why. Um, I think that's dependent upon kind of your fiscal situation and where you are in your career. And here's why. Okay, here's why. I worked with school principals who once they, they got to age 55, which is retirement age um, in my state, that you know you, you can retire and start drawing your pension. Uh, principals would tell me that once they got to age 55, they felt much more empowered to make kind of bold decisions, to go out on a limb, to, to enter into areas which might have a little more controversy versus playing it safe. Um, and basically, they felt they were the best leaders that they were once they hit age 55. Um, because it, it, the reasons they gave, you know, like if you're age 40, you know, 40, 45, you've got a family, you're setting down, you know, roots and stuff. If you upset your teachers, you get a vote of non-confidence, upset parents, school board, stuff like that, you might have to move. You know, and and that's hard on on your your family. It's hard on you and your career, and 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 so it's like you know people would play it more safe. You know, kind of a, a vanilla approach and do some things, but pull off of other things. So this is this is where I'm not sure. As one power grows, I, I think there's an inverse relationship to that. Um, that you know, if or if someone is you know totally fiscally secure, you know, as a CEO. And if they, they lose, you know, the position, the board of directors votes them out or whatever, um, they're going to land on their, their feet. And of course, fiscally, it's not as much as an issue versus like ego. But so, um, you know, we talked about member checks and, and here's where I wrote down member checks. So, you know, it was, it was back between 1915 and 1924. And I think this is fascinating. I absolutely think this is fascinating. So it was um, yeah, Harvey Firestone. Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. Now, I know all of those except John Burroughs, so I, I had to look up John Burroughs. And John Burroughs is a naturalist. So, um, you know, with nature, kind of in that John John Muir type thing. So, so, again, Harvey Firestone, Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. They call themselves the Four Vagabonds. And here's what they did. They were member checks, okay? They, they, they knew... Um, they were all leaders in their field. And when you got to Firestone, Ford, and, and Edison, I mean, they experimented. They had failed. They had, they had grown, you know, as, as, as you know, moguls in, in their fields. Um, 
but who could you talk to that's going to understand what it's like to be Henry Ford unless you're talking to like a Harvey Firestone or like a Thomas Edison? I mean, th these are people that can relate. And you also have the same curiosities and interests and stuff like that. And, and, and of course, John Burroughs then kind of being like the, the you know, the, the, the expert in, in, you know, naturalist and, and helping them understand and relate to nature. So they would go out, <laughs> they would go out, they put these caravans together and initially, you know, it would, so they, they go on camping trips and, and, and basically kind of rough it, although they weren't roughing it at all. <laughs> they had a caravan, you know, maybe of like 15 vehicles to start out and they bring all the amenities with them, but they would set up like a camp and then like, you know, they would have their support people, maybe like a block away in the woods, but you didn't know they were there. Um, and, you know, bringing them all of their meals and all this stuff, you know, these, but these four guys would sit around a campfire and they would just talk. They would just, you know, they, you know, and the comfort, you know, sit back in the chairs and talk and shoot the bowl, I guess, you know, um, and they did this very frequently, this camaraderie. And, and that was the member check though. That was their member check opportunities going on. I, I did more research into that. So absolutely fascinating. What happened though, they, you know, they, they, they connected with nature but they didn't fully connect with nature because they brought again all these amenities with them. And pretty soon the, the caravan went from like 15 vehicles up to like 50. It was like the, the, the circus coming to town. People would see this. They would come through and, uh, and then pretty soon people would go up and, and try to find where they were camping and they would bug them. And, and basically it, 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 it stopped because of that. It just got too big and, and too public. But that is a perfect example of member checks. And if you want to read more about that you know, and you can see photos but that's member checks again, sitting around, you know, that, that campfire, um, you know, maybe going out, you know, doing some boating, you know, canoeing type stuff on a, a, a lake, you know, hiking through some woods and stuff like that. Um, but the, these are where, um, you need to have those member checks and how many people do that? Like how many, how many people today do that? Like I'll admit, I haven't, I haven't been involved in a member check kind of activity for a while. I mean, maybe. I don't know, half a year. Um, and, and that's something I need to get back into. I do have, um, you know, a, a couple of friends, you know, that I'll be, be meeting up with as, as soon as it gets warm enough <laughs> to get out and golf. Um, and, and we're going to be, you know, that'll definitely be a member check. Um, and, and, you know, some other, you know, friends, of course, I'll be, be visiting and stuff like that. So, so yeah, have those. And, but, it's very important to have those in your life, have those. And these are, these are people again, who can understand what you've, what you're doing, kind of what you've been through, some of the pressures that you might be under. And these aren't people though, that you're going to, to validate you. You're not seeking them out to, to high five you and validate you. And that you like, just give them all of your issues and problems and all of that. It's, it's, it's where you, it, it, here, here's the thing here. Introspection doesn't always improve self-awareness. So this is an introspection mode. We want to get to awareness. So, um, okay. As it turns out, the question why is surprisingly ineffective self, uh, a self-awareness question. Research has shown that we simply do not have access to many of the unconscious thoughts, feelings, and motives we are searching for. So we talk about why, why, why. Although the word why um, uh, uh, appeared, um, okay, so in, in, this, in this research that this research team was, was doing a study, um, the word why appeared fewer than 150 times. The word what appeared more than 1,000 times. 
So you're examining the, the, the process, okay? So that's this whole what part thing. Nobody wants to hang around you as a member check if you're always like, why, why did this happen to me? And why, you know, because it's kind of like this victimization type, you know, thought of, of, you know, like I have no control over, or whatever, you know, this. And, um, and, and sometimes you, you just don't, don't you know, like, why did I get such a bad rating from my employees? Um, you know, I, we, we brought somebody in to talk to them of, you know, what they think about me and about management and why is this so bad and why, whatever, um, that doesn't get you anywhere. The, but what you need to do is you need to ask the what, you know, um, and, and the what really helps you out more. So, you know, like what, what are the situations here that are making me feel, um, unhappy with the way that my employees are, you know, have, have scored out this, this assessment about me or whatever. And what's in common here. So this whole thing of what it's like, then it brings you back to your own values and it's like, you know, I want my employees to view me as, as someone who's competent, that's someone that they can come to. And so maybe like I'm not listening to what they're they're saying either. Um, maybe we're not very well aligned as a, as a company and what our mission statement is here. Um, so it's, it's not – so I think when you ask that what, it gets into the process, the process part of it. Like Jack Welch was great with GE, right? Um, from what was it, 1981 to 2001, ran GE as the CEO, and and would get right on the floor, you know, the, the manufacturing floor, and would would talk to people, you know, of, of tell me what you're doing like right now, and how does this work with somebody else who's doing this, and just this conversational thing, and and show me how this is done, and and you know, tell me about your your training, and what are some things you think just right now like would be better about your your job or what's really good about what's happening down here and just i mean these types of things like you could walk through and you could do that so it's the what it's asking what and what is process we've talked about this before on the safety doc show improve process and your outcomes will typically improve so you don't study like you know why did this go wrong you stu- you look at the process what is the process for this and by studying the process saying oh you know what we have more options available like at this part you know these different nodes in the process um, and and we didn't spend enough time maybe considering the options that we had available or like we I think we should have more options available along the process so what are what are the options that we can bring into this, you know, so we're making better decisions instead of getting very much into like standard operating procedure that helps though. And it, it makes it more of a systems issue that you're, you're trying to improve. If you get into why, why gets very singular, why is very convergent onto like this one flaw in you or this person or whatever. So, um, I don't know. Stop asking why stop getting hung up into this whole why thing. Because you're only going to learn if you ask the what. You know, why did the challenger explode? And then, well, you know, you, you found out through the what. You know, the what, the processes and the pressure to to launch on a, and not delay and all of these things and organizational and feedback. That was the what that really got into it. The why is very technical. The why, you know, a, a seal, you know, failed and, and you know, boom, this is what happened. Um, um, so, you know, you can get very, very technical in, into that. Um, but again, it is, it is understand the, the why will get you your direct cause. Okay. The why is a hospital where, um, a doctor, 
um, makes a mistake during a surgery. Okay. Why? You know, why? What is, we don't understand. You know, why? How are you going to find that? So that's a direct cause. Made, made an made a error in, in the surgery. Now, the what is, so that's, the what is trying to get at the root cause. What's going on? You know, what's going on here? Well, okay. The doctor had to work two extra shifts um, and also uh, was was given, you know, like a unfamiliar surgical team to work with. So hadn't had the, the you know, the team that typically he or she works with for these procedures. So, and, and we found out the what is there's, there's this pattern right now of we're short on doctors. So we're asking doctors to take more shifts. And also when we have acute situations where we have to call in doctors, we're calling, you know, we're, we're not reaching out to other hospitals, other physicians to come in. Um, so we're, we're basically, our doctor was tired or what we, we have a system here that is, is, not designed to look out for that best interest of that physician. So we placed a, a fatigued decision. We know the fatigue impacts decision-making, even in the most highly trained, highly skilled people. Um, so that's your root cause. Your root cause is, is you have the systems problem that you need to fix, meaning that you're not burning out your physicians with, with you know, not a, a lack of sleep. So this, this is what happened. So um, anyway, so yeah, this, this, this whole systems things. So um, examining process, examine process. So as we move on here, um, okay. In one study, psychologist J. Gregory Hickson and William Schwann gave a group of un undergraduates negative feedback on their test of their sociability, likability, and interestingness, okay? And, and then they, they saw how they react. Thinking about why one is the way one is maybe no better than not thinking about oneself at all. So people would get this back, and especially the ones where the feedback was negative. Um, again, this is all a pretend type of thing. It, it, it meant not, it meant nothing. It was correlated related to nothing. But people like just spending that time of why, why, why versus like if you don't even think about it, like your outcome there is is by 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 pounding your, your mind and your thoughts of why, why, why you're not getting any further of like, if you just don't even take that on at all. So again, why isn't the question to ask? So, um, I'm going to put, you know, a plug out there for, um, I like Marcus Buckingham's work. So you can check him out. I think, um, on YouTube trombone player won it, but he talks about playing to your strengths too, which I think is very important throughout all of this. Um, in reality, you know, feedback accentuates the negative. In reality, it does. I mean, if you ask for feedback, most of the feedback you get is probably going to be negative. Now, your member checks will be honest with you, okay? Your member checks will be honest. But if you're just asking for feedback, a lot of times feedback is negative because people are negative and, you know, cynical. And it, here was this was this amazed. I'll go into uh, this. I'll validate this in chat forms. Like I will go often we'll go into comment sections and talk about comments. And you know that, you know, if you follow the show, because I think comments kind of reveal what the public really thinks about things. I mean, the people that are, I mean, if you, if you have, you know, enough comments, you can kind of distill out some themes. Um, and not that everyone is, it comes in negative and whatever, and maybe it's more of a trend. You know, if, if you're, if you align with this, there isn't a need to go in and further champion it through comments, but just some crazy, crazy patterns that show up um, in these, in these comment threads. 
But anyway, playing to the strengths. Um, Marcus Buckingham, playing to your strengths, knowing what your strength areas are, keeping those going. Because we we hear this this thing, think of like a baseball team. You know, like that, that's a great third baseman. Or, um, but not everybody or softball team or whatever, but you know, you, you, you don't, you're not going to be an expert at every position. You're not going to be an expert pitcher or first, you know, playing first base or the outfield or catcher. So you're an expert at what you're an expert at. You have, you have some strengths, um, strength areas. We all do. We have strength areas and we have areas that aren't as strong, which is fine. It's, it's normal. That's uh, <laughs> completely normal. Um, I think I, I talked about this too. I, um, you know, I had a basketball player when I was coaching. His name was Rob. And Rob was awesome. You know, he was like the best in the league. And we went up to the bowling alley as a team after the season was done, you know, just to, to hang out and, and kind of have a you know, season-ending event. And Rob was a horrible bowler. And I remember the, the look on um, his teammates' faces like, oh, my goodness, like, you're a great basketball player how can you be so awful at bowling and, and i think you know rob was kind of like i'm not great at everything you know what was it like michael jordan played basketball and he went out and he played baseball you know for a while and, and it wasn't nearly as good as, as baseball i mean they they kept him on teams because fans would flock to this ballparks to see him but um but you know it's this thing where you you have these these expectations sometimes are placed upon people and could be placed upon you as a leader um, of saying, you know, like if, if you're, you're really great in this area, like we expect you then to have that same greatness, that skill set carry over into these 10 other areas. So know that of yourself and, and know that right away. Um, you know, like one thing for me is on podcasting, you know, like I know like the graphics type of stuff I'm not great at. So I know the people to go to and friends that, that can do that and know the work that I do. So then they can create the stuff that, that matches what I have. Um, so I, I know where my skill sets are and, and kind of where, where they're not. So, um, at the very end of this, what did, so anyway, um, Tasha goes on to talk about, um, something referred to as, um, reflected best self, um, exercise or RBS, just to put that out there, that kind of gets more into looking at the, the process of how you do things, reflected best self RBS exercise, something you can get in Google. <laughs> 